Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 259 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Monster Inside Me, an interview with Francis and Tony Silva. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. Francis and Tony Silva are the brilliant minds behind the new Lyme documentary, The Monster Inside Me. This documentary is not only helpful for Lyme patients, but also family members, friends, colleagues, and even those who know nothing or little about Lyme disease. The documentary has five parts, the losses of Lyme, the darkness of Lyme, the truth of Lyme, the healing of Lyme, and the beauty of Lyme. Throughout the documentary, you're going to hear from leading experts in the Lyme community, like Dr. Horowitz, Dr. Bransfield, Dr. Cowden, and many others. You're also going to hear and learn from a wide variety of patients. We can't wait for the monster inside me to become mainstream around the world and for everybody to realize the reality that can be Lyme disease. Without further ado, Francis and Tony Silva in The Monster Inside Me. So, Francis and Tony, we are so excited yes. to have you on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. So, um, let's start with Francis 2.0. Francis, tell us a little bit about you. Where did you, you grow up and uh, where are you currently living? Hi, Rich. Um, well, I grew up in Colorado. That's where I'm originally from, Denver, Colorado. And um, I, I spent a lot of time in nature as a young child with my grandparents who had a, an RV and they had a boat. So I was always on the weekends out by the lake uh, in the mountains. And, um, and then I moved to Arizona um, in 2016 um, for the very reason why we're being interviewed. And that was to get treated for Lyme disease. All right, so we're going to get there in one second. So uh, Tony Silva, talk to us a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? And uh, talk to us about your background that ultimately brought you to filmmaking. Well, I, um, I grew up in the Amazon. Um, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you guys, but I grew up in the Amazon state in the capital city of Manaus in Brazil. Yeah, I lived there for a couple of years. And uh, then my parents moved around south of Brazil. And then I came to the States when I was nine. And I've been kind of back and forth, you know, uh, moved to uh, Arizona in 2014 uh, to work on a prior documentary that I briefly mentioned in this film. <clears throat> and then things, you know, the roads converged that I met Francis right there and, and, and everything flipped in our world. But so, the, um, so Tony, the two of you met when you were in Arizona together. Is that where you met? Yes, yes. And, and I'm sorry, were you working on the on the cancer film at that time? I was working on the cancer film at that time, and that was 2014 to 2015. And in 2015, um, I met Frances. She being a photographer, an amazing photographer. And I was I, ever I think every cinematographer enjoys photography. And when I saw her work, I was uh, I was like, wow, your work is really, really amazing. And you are also really cute. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's that. Yeah. So, Francis, talk to us a little bit more about what it was like to meet Tony um, and how your your uh, work as a photographer came together and allowed your worlds to intersect. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I was at the time I was doing photography on the side. I was working full time in corporate and had been doing that for many years. And um, it was in April of 2015 that I fell ill. And a month later is when I met Tony and I had begun sharing with him 
some of the symptoms that I had and the ish health issues that I had been struggling with. And because he had been working on this documentary, he had also met a lot of people with Lyme disease. And he's the one who started telling me, your story sounds really familiar. You ought to consider getting tested for Lyme disease. And um, she was like, Psh. yeah, I, you know, at that time I had already been misdiagnosed or diagnosed with an autoimmune um, yeah. So I was like, no, I don't need to get tested. I already know what the deal is. But um, the, the, the care that I was receiving really wasn't helping. They, you know, they put me on prednisone. You can't go on prednisone long-term. And I was on a very high dosage. So um, at that point, that's where things started to unravel and um, how we kind of came together. And uh, once I, I officially moved from Colorado to Arizona, then um, we started blending our ideas together, our, our work together and, and our story, obviously. So that's how it all happened. So Francis, let's talk a little bit about uh, the medical treatment that you were getting at that time. So you said that you fell ill or you began to fall ill in April of 2015. Uh, were you treating with doctors? Um, and what were the doctors diagnosing you with, if not Lyme disease? Yeah, so I, I was, um, I thought that I was exceptionally healthy. You know, I, I ate a clean diet. I, I was a runner, an avid runner. I would um, run, you know, every week, every weekend. I worked out in the gym. And then um, after returning from vacation in Miami, three weeks later, I was bedridden. And um, because all of my muscles essentially just shut down and stopped working, the, I went to see my primary care physician and she and another colleague of hers um, you know, started running some blood tests and going over my symptoms. And they uh, came to the conclusion clinical conclusion because the tests that they uh, had run, they did a couple of muscle biopsies, came back inconclusive. But they clinically diagnosed me with um, myositis, which explained why my CPK levels were so high and that was contributing to my muscles just completely shutting down. And um, so then I was referred to a rheumatologist who put me on the high dosage of prednisone and essentially it worked in the beginning because I was able now to get out of bed and over a period of weeks and months, I started resuming um, everyday life again, you know, back to work and things of that nature. But eventually there came a point where my rheumatologist said, listen, we can't keep you on this high dosage of prednisone for a very long time because it, it will contribute to many more health issues. And uh, so he started weaning me off of the prednisone. And as he started weaning me off, all my symptoms started to come back. Mm. All right. And that's now, finally when I decided to take Tony's advice and get tested for Lyme. So let's, let's pause there for a second, because one of the things we've learned on this podcast is that uh, prednisone or any steroid is immunosuppressive. And as a result, it will actually exacerbate your Lyme symptoms. So you were misdiagnosed by the medical community. You were mistreated by the medical community. Clearly your, your, your symptoms were developing. And so Tony, talk to us about that. Now you're, you're a filmmaker, you're a storyteller, you're, you just finished a documentary and you learned about Lyme disease. So first talk to us about how you learned about Lyme disease through your work on the cancer film. And then talk to us about essentially using bro science to, um, to help Francis diagnose, properly diagnose her illness rather than, rather than science. Because one of the things we see all the time 
on this podcast is doctors regularly misdiagnose people with Lyme disease. And then, we, you know, we call it the bro science or the sister science. You have someone who has experience with Lyme disease, either because they themselves have gone on the journey or a family member has gone on the journey. And they say to someone who, who has the symptoms is not yet diagnosed, hey, you have Lyme disease, you better go get tested. So talk to us about how that was a part of your journey, Tony. Well, uh, yes, bro science, for sure, for sure. So um, we were, Ryan and I were interviewing people that had cancer and three or four of the interviewees, by the way, that, that documentary never saw the light of day, it was shelved. Um, there were some issues with it, uh, with our backers, but um, talking with a lot of people, they said, yeah, the, the treatment with, for, for cancer was going okay, it was this and that until things started getting really complicated and there was some kind of underlying cause. We got tested and we le I learned that, uh, that I have uh, Lyme disease and we, we, we went, what's Lyme disease? You know, I, I had never heard of Lyme disease in my life ever. And this is 2015, 20, no, mid 2014. Um, so then that's when we started uh, researching and talking to these people more and more. <clears throat> that's why when I met her, um, um, the, the, everything came together in my mind, you know, now, when I met you in 2015, you were, you were pretty strong. You were taking a bunch of, a bunch of stuff, right? Because one of our hobbies, we like to, um, photograph abandoned sites, you know, abandoned factories and schools. We, we, and there was a, when, when we went to Colorado, uh, for the first time, shortly after we met, I said, you know, there's this abandoned mine up way up North and, and we drove there. And we went down this mountain and then you, you were able to climb it up with me on the way. Now, I mean, you could now, but. I was um, heavily medicated. You were heavily medicated. <laughs> Not only was I on prednisone, I was on oxycodone. There you go. To there help with go. the pain issues. Yeah. So. So that, you're, you're popping pills while you're, you're climbing that mountain. I was. Yes, yeah. I was. <laughs> so now, so I. Francis, I'm wondering, did you know anything about Lyme disease before you were diagnosed? Meaning, were you aware of ticks through through um, through anything that you learned in the educational system or through any other um, any other social information that you gathered? Uh, I did not know anything about Lyme disease. I had heard about you know tick-borne illness and and the fact that I did live in Colorado and there's a lot of hiking. Uh, you, you know, a lot of hikers out there. Um, we were, as a young person, I remember being encouraged to check for ticks, but I don't ever remember learning anything further than that. You know, obviously check for ticks because you can get sick, but I didn't know anything else beyond that. So, so did you take the advice that you were given that you should check for ticks? And was it a part of your life that you were regularly checking for ticks? You know, I was so young when I would go out with my grandparents, I was an, just a child. So um, I don't remember them checking. Actually, I do remember, wow. I feel like I'm, I'm suddenly remembering something that, um, that I hadn't recalled, but I do remember my mom. Yeah. Checking me, my head for ticks. Um, of course, I don't remember them ever discovering anything. My parents and my mom are no longer around. So it's not like I could go back and ask them, did you ever find anything? So it's, it's just become a mystery for me because I don't know if and when I was ever bitten by a tick. Um, 
But, you know, I do know that in my 20s, looking back on my medical history is, is when I started developing some of the symptoms, you know, since then. And so, Tony, um, we, we actually have interviewed a number of people um, who have either been from your native country or visited your native country. For example, we actually interviewed a woman from Japan who studied dance in Brazil. Uh, and she actually was bitten by a tick and ultimately was diagnosed with Lyme disease after she returned back to Japan. So I think it's interesting that you're from Brazil. There is clearly a, a, a tick-borne disease yes. issue in Brazil, yet you had never even heard of ticks during yeah. your time either in Brazil or in the U.S. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that we have quite a lot of people um, reaching out to us now saying, hey, I'm in Brazil. Is this movie going to be subtitled in Portuguese? And yeah, quite a, quite a few, you know, we get a larger number from Nordic countries, Australia, um, Germany and France, but now South America, Argentina and Brazil are, are um, they're getting hit over there too. So yes, that doesn't surprise me at all. So Tony, talk to us about how you knew there was a story here, right? So you, 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 you meet Francis in, in, in 2015, you start to see some uh, traditional uh, symptoms of Lyme disease that you had learned about when you were studying the topic for a related or, or um, on a related issue when you're doing the, the, the cancer uh, film. How did you, the filmmaker, sort of immediately know that there was a story here to be told and that you had to capture this so that it could be told the way it needed to be told? So it's just the way my brain works. Uh, so the way my brain works is, there's a story to be told everywhere. Everywhere you go, there's a story. There's somebody that, you know, we always, we go to a subway or something and we look at that guy, that guy's got a story. <laughs> you know, either, either, either the face tells a story, we wanna photograph the face, you know, because there, it just, um, or the, the person, but, but there's a story everywhere. But meeting her and the way everything fit was um, was divine appointment. And um, I knew that as I started following some Lyme groups and talking to some people that, you know, very few people that had Lyme, um, when we started living together, uh, that's when I saw that. Then I watched Under Our Skin, I watched a couple of other short documentaries and I thought, you know, I think I feel and sense something that's missing in the storytelling process. So that's where it was born, the idea. So Francis, you're, uh, you're, now, uh, you're now developing a relationship with a filmmaker, um, and uh, I'm sure, um, like most people, you valued your privacy. So uh, Very so private person. Talk, talk, to us, talk to us about what it was like when uh, this uh, man um, who is now helping you to find a diagnosis for your illness is now also asking you to now vulnerably share this journey when you didn't even know where it was going to take you. Right. Um, at that point, I definitely did not know where things would add up, end up. Uh, at the time where he started filming, I had just began treatment and I was doing the IV antibiotics. And I, I did that for uh, four months. And so um, I am a very, very private person. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the person on social media who doesn't really put out a lot of pictures. I don't share a lot about my life. I keep it you know, pretty um, 
superficial. <laughs> She's an introvert and an empath. Here comes this extrovert. Hey, <laughs> over there in the dark, you know, trying, I'm getting treatment. I have an idea. What if I get this camera? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was a little reserved and a little reluctant, but in the beginning stages, we just thought it was going to be something short and simple, like 30 minutes, a YouTube deal. And so I agreed to that because that was simple enough for me, but that's so, so he started gathering, you know, some footage and he compiled um, his first trailer. And uh, once I, I was actually on vacation with some girls. That's uh, right. We were doing a, a road trip for the weekend to Santa Fe, New Mexico. November 2016. And he um, text messaged me and he's like, hey, I have an idea. How would you feel if we shared this online just to see what happens? And I was like, sure. Okay, let's try that. And then created a Facebook page, put the little teaser up. Yeah. And then... Um, it was like hours later, I get another text message and he's like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what's happening. You, you, I put this teaser out and we've already got a thousand views and people are commenting. And so it, I was just busy having a good time with my friends. And then 10,000 views, 50,000 views. He started sharing screenshots with me of people's reactions. Yeah. And then I was deeply moved because at that point I realized that I was no longer alone with my story and that there were indeed other people out there who were going through similar things that I was experiencing. And that was just a big shocker for me. And that's kind of when the idea was sold that we needed to do something more. And because of people's comments, which was, Oh my God, that's me. Francis is me. I'm living in shame. I don't want anybody to see this thing that's going on with me with Lyme rage and, and these Lyme symptoms, and I'm so ashamed, but that is me, that is me. And so with that, we, we thought, oh man, we gotta, maybe we have a, that, that was the first trigger, you know, maybe. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that, Francis, because we, I, I know from the film, you were an Uber fit, uh, young woman. Uh, you were, you were a long distance runner, a regular runner. Um, and, Clearly, you make a very good appearance, um, and you know. So you're you're somebody who is who has always made a good appearance. Um, how did you feel about being as vulnerable as you were going to be, and not looking your best, and you know, not being you know the uber fit person you had once been when you were now going to be sharing this story? Well, there were a lot of times that Tony would film me. Um, without me even realizing that I was being filmed because sometimes he would just pull out his phone and stick it in my face. And those moments were aggravating for me because here I am going through neurological Lyme symptoms and and I have a camera in my face. Um, So that, that was difficult. There were a lot of times where, you know, I just, I would get upset because I, I didn't, want all of that to be shared or to be shown. Um, And then there were, as we began moving forward with the project, and as I began discovering more and more about my own illness, then I I wanted to speak up and to share my voice because as more stories started to come in, uh, you know, eventually it became thousands of people contacting us regularly by email and through uh, Facebook Messenger. 
I was just blown away with the amount of people who were struggling like I was and who also needed a voice, wanted their voice to be heard. And, um, and so I became, um, you know, more, I, I became more ready to share my story, I guess, you know, more willing, more willing to share my story. Um, but there, there were times in the midst of some of the things that were going on where, you know, I was experiencing disassociative uh, symptoms and, you know, almost feeling like I wasn't even present. I was outside of myself because my brain was so inflamed that, um, like I said, I didn't even realize that he was filming me some of those times. So, um, but I, I, after I reviewed some of the footage, I, I knew it was important to just kind of to be real and to be raw and to be genuine with the public because I always felt like Lyme is something that you, you don't talk about. You, you can't explain what you're going through. You just kind of have to show it to, in order for people to understand what it's like. Yeah. So Tony, talk to us about that. Tony, yeah. talk to us about the, you know, you're, you're a storyteller. You want to tell the real story. You want it to be told as vulnerably as possible. But as you had described earlier, you met this beautiful woman who is uber fit. Um, and, uh, and you're now going to have to help her to overcome this wall where she's going to have to be available when she's at her worst. And right. she's going to have to be available when, when she's feeling terribly and when she's suffering from Lyme range and all these other challenges. How did you help Frances get to the epiphany that it was important that she make herself that available? That's a great question. There's a few different answers, but you have to also understand that she is being humble. She's also incredibly courageous because I would shoot a lot of footage and I would shoot that footage, not for the movie, I'd shoot that footage to show her to see if she would allow it to be included in the movie. So at the end of an, uh, a small era, you know, I'd show Francis, what do you think of this? What if I put this right here? And then she would look and, and say, oh, that's awful, but it's important, isn't it? So together we kind of chose this footage and there's things that didn't make the cut, you know, there's a lot of stuff that didn't make the cut. So, so that's that. And then there was the second moment where we put that first teaser up a high school friend of hers that is actually in the film named Michelle. Um, she was awesome. Watch She's awesome. Yeah. Watch that trailer. She said, oh my goodness, that's me. Got tested, got Lyme, went, got treated. She's in remission. Come on. When we heard this story, we said, oh, we got it. This is big. We can help people with this. We can save lives, you know? And that was a moment, that was one of the big epiphanies, Michelle Howard, um, to really move forwards and push this at any cost. So Tony, talk to us about um, your, your sort of, the way you structured the film, right? You, uh, the way you developed the film is you had five parts. So talk to us yeah. about how you decided you were gonna tell this story in five different parts. I don't remember how that came about. It just came to me um, that I had to do, instead of a linear documentary, I wanted to do it with a narration and break it up in these five different parts. So it's, if I may, it's part Please. one, the losses of line, because the people, we first started interviewing a lot of people, the, the Zajacs were the first people we interviewed in 2017. And um, um, 
when I heard their story, everything started compartmentalizing in my head, you know, that Elena went through a lot of loss. Every, every Lyme patient goes through losses. Lyme patients lose everything. Frances lost a lot of stuff. And I would talk to her about this. What are some of the things you, you had lost? And she said, oh, for the, the very first thing was my freedom and independence. You got to have that in the movie because we, people with Lyme lose freedom and independence right away. Okay. So part one became the, the losses of Lyme. Then we interviewed more people. We saw that there was a lot of darkness that, that had been, um, we started interviewing doctors and they talked about things they saw and the things that I saw. There's a darkness in this film that people are not addressing. And if they are, all they do is talk about the darkness and it becomes so, ugh, you know? Um, so this first teaser that went out, we had a lot of people from different Lyme orgs and groups contact us and say, you guys are just doing the same thing. Just all of these, uh, woe is me, Lyme stories. We, we, need to, we need to talk about change. And I understood that, you know? So that's when we, we knew that we had to talk about healing and the beauty of Lyme because to go through darkness, our, our, our mantra became pierced through the darkness and on the other side is the beauty of Lyme. So then, then we structured the, um, the entire film. Now, of course, um, the truth of Lyme, which is my favorite part in the film. Um, just part three. And just, what's that? That's part three. Part three, yes. We, uh, we um, had other things that we were going to add, but we, we took out like the origins of Lyme, which were, you know, I read Lab 251. I love that book. I read that book thinking, this is just pure conspiracy. I don't know if, I don't know if you had a chance to read it. I have. But I read it going, oh my goodness, this looks real. This, this documentation is authentic. This is Operation Paperclip, Google, study more books, you know, and, and all this investigative process. I really, I was very enamored with that process, but we thought that it would take away, um, we just, we opted to keep that out. So that's how the five parts kind of came together. We put it up in the board. I would always show her, you know, she was writing with me. What do you think of this, Francis? Part one, two, three, four, five. We start with losses, going to darkness, but here's the light at the end of the tunnel. We showed them some truth, healing, and what it's been all about, the purpose of Lyme and the the um, and and through the whole process, um, we're talking with our Facebook people. You know, we're talking with people there who who respond very well to us. Hey, has this journey has has it had any purpose and meaning? And you know, ninety eight percent absolutely, and just a small percentage said no. This is, you know, the devil's attacking me, and my life is horrible, and there's no meaning except to be. And that's that's what a, an illness does, right? So. Um, that's how the five parts came about. How they... So Francis, I have one more question to ask you before I turn you over to Matt. And, uh, and, and this is something I think we're gonna come back to, but one of the parallels between your story and Matt's story is Matt was actually also an uber fit uh, young man before he had gotten sick. He was a runner just like you are. Oh, wow. One of the things that we've discovered is that, um, that if you engage in too much uh, cardiovascular aerobic exercise, it actually reduces your T cell count. So do you think that, um, that the, um, the amount of, of cardiovascular exercises that you were engaging in just before you had gotten sick played a role in making you more vulnerable to the illness? Well, I mean, it definitely um, put me in a place of more exposure because I was outdoors all the time. I mean, that's where I love to run was 
outdoors and you know it was either at the lake or at a park or hiking um you know colorado is the best place to go hiking so um so yes that yes to that um and uh yeah i think is, did, did that answer your question <laughs> it did so so it, you you think it certainly made you more vulnerable because you're more likely to come in contact with ticks because you're outside all the time. And that's actually one of the things I think your documentary really beautifully developed that people who are more active and people who are more outdoorsy are more likely to come in contact with the disease and therefore it becomes even more traumatic for them because it really steals so much of their life from them. So it, you're, you're certainly more vulnerable. But my question was a little bit different, which is um, because the T cell count gets reduced when you're doing so much cardiovascular exercise, perhaps, and I'm, I'm saying just perhaps, um, I, because I know you do exercise differently now, that perhaps the, the, the extreme nature of the exercise you're engaging in made your immune system more compromised, at least temporarily, before you had, uh, before you had gotten sick. Yeah, I, I would believe so. I mean, theoretically speaking, I would say yes. But I, I, I do recall um, in 2014, I had went in for an annual checkup to see my primary care physician. And, oh, and this was before I had any um, visible symptoms. Already, she had noticed that my liver enzymes had started to, um, to rise. And at that point, she started asking me a lot of strange questions like, was I taking a lot of supplements? How much uh, physical exercise was I doing? Was I doing a lot of, um, you know, weight bearing exercises? And um, because she couldn't understand why my liver enzymes were so high. Of course, she also asked me of how much alcohol I had been consuming. They had to do an ultrasound of my liver. And at that point, I, I didn't even understand what was going on. I, I just you know, was alarmed that they were concerned about that, but I didn't have any symptoms at that point. Um, but I do remember her telling me to cut back on, actually, she told me to cut out all of my supplements that I had been taking. And I took a lot of supplements because I was exercising all the time. You know, I took stuff for my metabolism. I took stuff for, um, if, uh, you know, a lot of protein and amino acids and things like that, because I, I did um, run all the time. And I was lifting weights as well at that time. So, so, um, yes, I, and it was only months later that, um, that my, I believe my immune system did start to shut down because all of a sudden I started having, um, a lot of, um, yeah, I don't know. In the movie, you see that I started having a lot of swelling around my eyes and rashes and things like that around my face. And obviously, you know, when your immune system isn't able to protect you, then it, your body becomes a, a portal for things to just start happening. And that's little by little as the months went by, I started um, a lot of different things started happening to my body, a lot of changes. I became more susceptible. So Francis, Tony, I really want to talk more with you about the documentary. Before we do that, I just want to share with you that my observations and concerns going into previewing this movie when we first met about a month ago. So my first concern was, I really hope this is not a movie that is lime as hell and that's it. And that there's nothing else because people that are going to be watching are going to be patients, but also people that want to learn as well. And I always go approach these things with the mindset of people that are really sick and in the throes of it 
can be triggered and possibly put over the edge by a documentary like this. Yeah, so in the beginning, point. I was a little anxious. I'm like, okay, this is really showing the truth of Lyme, but oh boy, this is the real hell that could be Lyme disease. But I really loved, and what I think is so unique about your, your documentary is the fact that in the end, I felt this uplifted energy. I had hope. I had this amazing feeling that I walked away with that you can overcome this. You can be better. You can be stronger and you can have stronger relationships. In fact, I know your relationship is stronger because of your experiences. So thank you both for not only showing the reality of Lyme and how horrible it can be, but also that there is hope you can get better to not give up because that's a message people often lose sight of and they, they never, ever should lose sight of that. So thank you right off the bat for making this a brilliant documentary and showing the whole picture of what Lyme is as a whole. So thank you. Oh, so yeah, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the part, part one, right? And because some of the things that I really enjoyed, I mean, a lot of us in the Lyme community know that there are a lot of patient stories and a lot of doctors that are pretty well known out there. And not only were you showing your story, Francis and Tony, you know, your, your perspective as a caretaker, but you were also showing other doctors in the community and other patients, right? So we know Dr. Cowden from the Cowden protocol was in the first chapter. We know Dr. Robert Bransfield, who's a famous Lyme psychiatrist, was in the first, the first part of the documentary. We do know that you had the founder of Envita in the first part of your documentary. So talk to us about why you chose to feature Lyme patient stories, but also mix in these different specialists in the Lyme field to get their perspective in addition to the patient perspective as well? Mm. Well, this answer may be a little bit simpler than you were looking for, but it just seemed kind of obvious that in a medical documentary, you needed both sides. You needed the, uh, the doctors talking about it from a professional standpoint, um, um, you know, professionals that know what they're doing and the patients that are fighting through this. And with the patients, we wanted people that were still going through the eye of the storm. And we wanted patients that had made through the other side, but we also wanted to find couples that had amazing love stories because we started learning that Lyme. Listen, I went to a clinic and um, I, I like to talk to people and there was a young couple, 30 years old, sitting down getting treatment. The girl was getting treatment. She had an IV and Hey guys, how's it going? And they said, you know, they were both very bashful and they started talking a little bit. And then I told them this was in 20, beginning of 2018. So the movie wasn't out as much as it is now. And I told them well, we're, we're doing this documentary online and, and they, oh, really? What's it called? The, the monster inside me and so forth. And then I said, uh, one of the things that we're, that, that I'm researching right now a little bit more in depth and getting from doctors is Lyme Rage. Have you guys, do you guys know about this? Have you heard about Lyme Rage? And suddenly the, the husband went like this. He went, he just sat back in his chair, his eyes got teary-eyed and he walked out and she started crying. And I thought, and I said, I am so sorry. What I'm, you know, I, and she said, yes, yes, I have Lyme rage right there. I knew exactly what they were going through right there. So that's when I knew that we needed, um, I wanted to show couples that, um, pierced through that darkness and made it to the other side and their relationship is stronger because of it. Is the, are there couples like that out there? That's what we went to find out. Did you see that Finnish couple from Finland? Oh my God, those two are amazing. Their story is incredible. And, and Elena and Rob, holy cow, you know, those things blew us away. 
So yeah, that's why we, we wanted to have doctors validating what's going on and what's not going on in the brain and in the body and what's an illusion, what is not. And then the, the, um, the patients hand in hand backing each other up, you know, like a, like a zigzag throughout the film. That was the. Yeah. Sure, Tony. And, and Francis, I want to ask you a question, Francis, because, you know, as a, as a, somebody who's gone through Lyme myself and, and you going through it, what I really enjoyed about the first part of this documentary is not only as Tony explained that we're having these patient stories and we can relate, but we had these experts in the field validating and confirming what we've been through. And I can't tell you how many people we've interviewed and talked to in the Lyme community who tell us, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, my grandfather, my dad, they don't believe this is real and that's a real problem for me. And you had some of the, the leading experts in neuropsychology, in you know MD doctors like Dr. Horowitz come on and without a doubt, to prove that this is real. So for me, that was so powerful right off the bat to show the best of both worlds. So did you do that with intention, Francis, to realize that early on, you didn't know what was going on. You had some doubts in your mind. You wanted to let people know this is real. And scientifically, this is a real valid illness that people have. And everybody needs to understand that. Yeah, definitely. I felt like it was two parts. One was trying to unravel my own journey, you know, trying to find answers for what I was experiencing and going through. But again, the more that we would talk to other patients uh, and, and followers of ours, uh, they, they too were expressing the fact that they didn't have that validation, that they're, they had lost a lot of relationships. Um, it, they were saying things that I had yet to experience that were unbelievable to me, like that they had lost friends and family members that were no longer in relationship with them. And I thought, well, you know, that's a little extreme. At that point, it hadn't happened to me, but then eventually it did. And so when that, when that did happen, then it became a journey of mine to, to explain to those family members and those um, friends who didn't understand and to find the answer and to, to, to get the stories of other patients who were experiencing the same thing because it is happening and it does happen. And it blew my mind that it happened to me because you know, I have solid relationships. I have strong support system, but when it happened to me, I, I was in disbelief that I had finally found myself in an area where I became susceptible to that. And so it definitely became a, a journey about just telling the truth, getting the answers, exposing, you know, all of this to everyone, not only for the Lyme patients, but for family and friends who do not understand any of this. So Francis, I do want to follow up on that because you talked about the validation and, the, and learning and growing. And as we progress from part one to part two, which is the darkness of Lyme, you really focused on a lot of the psychological changes that our brains have from the pathogen. So not only are we, yes, going to become depressed and anxious because we're sick, but the bacteria actually causes us to psychologically change as well. And you had psychologists proving that, you had doctors proving that, and you had a ton of patients that you've interviewed prove that as well. And you were so courageous to show some of your Lyme rage experiences with your husband, Tony. And I thank you for being brave to show that because people need to see that we're not alone and it's a hard thing to share and talk about. So talk to us about, you know, as you were going through this, how you learned that you weren't alone and you were getting all these other patient stories and realizing this is a much bigger problem than I thought. 
And my experience is not unique and other people have had similar experiences and we need to get this out there. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, okay, so I, I can no longer run. I could barely climb stairs. So that was probably one of the largest setbacks physically that I had experienced from Lyme disease, but even more so were the neurological symptoms because I could not explain what was happening to me. And I could not understand how it was happening when my brain felt like it was on fire. And, and I was so inflamed that it would literally shut me down day after day after day, not only, um, you know, psychologically, but physically, uh, because when you're depressed and you're in a dark place and you feel like this dark cloud is constantly hovering over you, you don't wanna get out of bed. You don't wanna see people. You don't wanna associate with anybody. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I just had a, a brain, I, a Lyme brain. You know? Hey, like, I get it all the time. So it's okay. This is the, this is the Tick Bootcamp Lyme podcast. So join the club, right? <laughs> but, right. but really- but really, Francis is, I mean, you were just so brave to share this, right? I mean, you're talking about your brain was on fire. In, in, in the documentary, you talk about how you felt like there was an alien living in your head and he was invading the privacy of your mind, right? And that's just yeah. so powerful. And we can all relate to that. And then you went on to talk about the, you know, some people develop these intrusive thoughts about harming themselves or others, which is the bacteria. It's a psychological change. And people are ashamed of that and don't want to speak about it. So again, you were so brave to, to be so open and honest about your experiences. And I think that was just so beautiful and courageous of you. And, and I do want to pivot over Tony, because Tony, as we just said, your wife was changing, right? Frances was changing. She was having these, these traits. She was becoming cognitively declined. She was having some nor neurological and psychological decline. What were your observations of Frances and how were you reacting to your wife's declining health at this time? Um, it was probably probably the hardest thing that I have ever had to go through in my entire life to see a loved one deteriorate like that. There's nothing, there's nothing darker, nothing, nothing. That was very tough. So um, as we stayed out, we state in um, the healing of Lyme in part four, that the caretaker needs to um, hold on to certain things, to certain elements, to certain beliefs, to keep carrying on, needs to be doing certain disciplines. Because if you just float through it, and, and that's what happened to us, you know, we had every dream dies, has a death, you know, and, and um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, TMIM had a death at the end of 2018, we went through a big crisis. And it's because I wasn't taking care of myself anymore. And I had a blowout, you know, and from that crisis came a rebirth of we're going to change. We're going to do this now. I'm going to see her differently. I'm going to see myself differently. Um, I'm relying on, on a few things here to, to, to go through. And if you don't have hope, that's something. If you're not clinging on to something, we're spiritual people. You know, we have deep belief in God. And, and if, if I'm not calling out to God, if I'm not um, daily in this spiritual um, um, walk, then I, then this, this journey is impossible. It, it's very tough, you know? So that's, that's how I saw it. I knew that she, in the, in the eye of the storm, I knew that things were really bad, but I, I always had hope. I always had optimism that things were going to change that I, I, you know, that, that never changed for sure. 
So Tony, I really think you guys did a brilliant job at sharing how Lyme rage and the psychological and emotional changes are caused by the disease. And you highlighted a particular story with a pastor who had severe neurological changes because of Lyme disease and went off on his, uh, you know, while preaching one day and for 15 minutes went off and was cursing out everybody that he was preaching to, right? And you talk about that the toxins in your brain and how they do this and why it happens. And number one, you're not alone. Number two, this is common with Lyme disease. And number three, there's a real reason this is happening, but you can overcome it, right? And I think that was a really beautiful part of how you describe this. But you also talk about the caretaker burnout having to deal with this on the other side of it, right? So what things did you do, Tony, to help yourself? And you mentioned you obviously had this crash, but what have have you learned throughout this journey as a caretaker that you need to do for yourself to be there and be the best possible support you can be for your wife? I have to take care of mind, body, and spirit. That to me, there's no other way. And this is what we talk about in the... um, in the, um, in the film. So to this day, I wake up, I take care of my body. I watch what I eat, even though I'm not perfect as nobody is, you know, um, I do love my desserts here and there. She's one, you shouldn't, you know, I know, I know, but, uh, as they alter some, but, um, um, you know, I, I, I make sure that I'm spiritually connected to, to the things that I believe in the things that I, that are important uh, my reading, my research. So I, I have to be centered. I have to be centered on this purpose. And I think that every caretaker needs that, you know, whatever it is that you do, because if you don't, if you, like I said, if you're floating about it's so to me, that's the answer. The short answer is you got to take care of your mind. You got to take care of your mind. You got to take care of your body as a caretaker. And you got to take care of the spirit of this, that soulful, the, the wills, the emotions, con- connection to God and all that stuff. Yeah. Sure. And I, I just and I want to pivot back over Francis because in at the end of part two, the darkness of Lyme, you talked to talk to the us about you put on this mask and you had to pretend to be somebody that you weren't. And I think almost every single one of us can relate to that. You know, looking back, do you think that was something good that you did that you had to put on this mask to pretend to be somebody you weren't, or do you think that actually made things worse and maybe inhibited your healing a little bit or prevented you from getting the proper treatment or proper diagnosis, et cetera? Yeah, when I when I put on the mask, I think, um, you know, going back to the neurological symptoms that I was experiencing, there was so much of it that I didn't understand. And I remember trying to open up to some friends and family members, but I could tell from the get go that they just absolutely could not relate. They couldn't even fathom what I was experiencing in my mind. In my darkest point, I got to a point where I thought I was going crazy and it it had gone beyond depression and anxiety because um, for the most part, I would look around and I had a good life. I, I, I didn't feel like my depression was because I was unhappy. There was more going on. And so um, because I couldn't explain that very well to people and most of my family and friends um, live in a different state, you know, because I moved out to Arizona. So they, they weren't seeing me regularly anymore. They weren't aware of a lot of the things that I was going through, both physically and neurologically. So when I would show up, I would just have to kind of be the same old me that I was, that they were used to seeing, you know, the same old Francis, the one who was up and adventurous and um, excited about life, but yet I was in a completely different place. So with regard to, um, you know, that preventing healing, I, I, to a certain degree, yes. I mean, looking back, 
if I was able to be more open with family and friends, I think I would have had more healing in my relationships and more of a connection. But instead, um, I became disconnected from the people in my life that I truly cared about and who I knew genuinely loved me. But I felt a lack of support only because every time I showed up, I had my mask on. Yeah, that's a good answer. And can I add that your your childhood friends are going to watch this movie with their mouths agape. Yeah. They're going to be like, what? I have, you know, friends in my life who've been friends for 30 plus years. And when they see this documentary, they're going to be seeing things that they've never even heard of before, you know, because most of the time I was just shut in, you shut in my bedroom, shut in bed. I, you know, I went through treatment for three years and and it was hell. (laughs) It was hell. And these are, there are some clips of what I went through that my closest family members and friends have no clue about. Can I say something, Matt? Um, We we want, so this is, this that happened to her that she's talking about, um, you know, the friends and family not understanding really what's going on, right? So another one of our objectives is for people that have loved ones and they have Lyme to give them a copy of the DVD and say, watch this movie right here, The Monster Inside Me. You're going to sort of understand some of the things I'm going through. And we want those family members and friends to watch that and call them later and say, I had no idea. Is this real? I had no idea. So my question to you is when you watch this, do you feel that this was a, is a film that can be shared to family and friends that family and friends would understand or start getting a, a, a grip of what's going on with the person sick with Lyme? Yeah, what do you think? Tony, I love that you're asking this question. And, and I have to tell our listeners, this was not planned and I did not share this with you until now, right? But I, after watching it, I was so just taken in by it. And it was such a powerful documentary that I told my mother, my father, some of my sister, some of my friends, and some of my coworkers that I they must watch your documentary when it comes out because it'll help them understand the reality of life. Now my mom saw it; she knows it. She was my caretaker, but I wanted her to watch it just so she can see other patients in the stories and, and hear from the experts, right? But about other people that I work with, I wanted them to watch it because they just don't understand how serious and complex Lyme is, and like. You, Francis, I hid a lot of that from people in my life. So I wanted them to see the reality of it. So to answer your question, Tony, 1000% yes, this documentary must be shared with family and friends of of people of Lyme, and it must be distributed around, around because people need to see this and understand how bad it is. And this is a perfect transition into part three of your documentary, which is the truth of Lyme, right? The truth of Lyme disease. The CDC says that hundreds of thousands of people have Lyme in the U.S. In fact, that number was much less. Now they're finally realizing it could be up to half a million per year. But in reality, it's millions of people and millions of people are suffering with with chronic, persistent Lyme disease. And you really go into in great detail about this is the most controversial disease in the country, in America. And you call the CDC, Tony, right? And they they refuse to speak to you. And for me, that was huge. Yeah, that was huge because I mean, I was told I was told that according to the CDC, I was cured with Lyme disease after 21 days of antibiotics after suffering for years with severe neurological late stage Lyme disease. And I was not cured. And that was very harmful to me personally. So I'm very happy that you explored that. But talk to us about what that was like to really dive in and find the truth of Lyme, Tony, on your end and have so many people close these doors and not be willing to speak with you. Oh, my goodness. It was uh, 
how do we even begin? It was maddening and crazy. Uh, um, it was a rabbit hole, you know, just a, uh, into a surreal world, you know, learning about these, the, 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 the history of Lyme and the CDC and the IDSA, um, you know, these things that we talk about in the movie, uh, we joke about all the time. As soon as this movie goes out, let's move to Mexico so we can feel safe. <laughs> but um, the, the, the truth is that um, we, as we were researching and exchanging emails with, um, with experts, you know, they, they told us, be careful with this stuff, you know? And that's when I knew we were onto something. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a trip, Matt, to to say it like that. It was just uh, very surreal, very surreal. And I mean, this is real deep, right? I mean, and you also talk about how you know the last disease that was eradicated was polio in 1955, and how the CDC profits more when we treat a disease instead of cure it. And, and you know, look, before I got sick, I would have been like, ah, you're crazy. But the more you learn and the more you research, this is real, and this is happening. Special interests; these things are happening, right? And you know. You, you, a, a astounding fact that you share in this, this documentary that I just want to share is 85% of neurologically Lyme, neurological Lyme patients go misdiagnosed and mistreated for psychological conditions and take drugs like Prozac and suffer indefinitely their entire lives. I mean, that alone is just, just mind-blowing, right? So, so for you, Francis, what was this like as you and Tony were exploring the, the controversy that is Lyme disease and the Lyme wars and all the special interests, the IDSA, and the, you know, the, the conflict of interest, I mean, it's just wild. The more you go down this rabbit hole, you know, how are you responding to learning all this and realizing you were caught in the middle of this, this debate and this political, you know, really hostile environment? It was like living in a parallel universe. <laughs> it was like, it was um, my reality before I got sick and versus my reality now that I am sick and seeing that there were these two different worlds that that were kind of missing each other, you know, they don't blend together and um, and feeling like the majority of us out there um, are asleep. We have no idea that this is going on until you become affected by it. Yes. Because then once you become affected by it, you you recognize that you have to become your own health advocate. And so yes. then you start doing research. To, to learn more about the disease and how to treat it. And then you finally find out that there's a lot of um, politics involved. There's um, a lot of uh, greed involved. And, um, and you come to realize that as a patient, you're just this small number. It's overwhelming. In, in, in the mix of millions of other people who are experiencing the same madness and yet there is still no answers to be found in the, in the medical community. And because there's so many closed doors that when you, when you enter into your doctor's office and you start to talk about these things and ask questions, um, the door gets shut on you repeatedly in many different ways, whether you're being told, oh, you, you probably are just feeling depressed and anxious. So you know, here's the Prozac. Every or, Lyme patient knows this. Yeah. Or yeah. in my case, um, I went to my primary care physician in Colorado mm. and I was, I asked for a, a Lyme test and she said, no, 
well, you don't have to take a Lyme test. You don't have to worry about it because the ticks here in Colorado don't carry Lyme disease. I, I was specifically told that. Then after I received um, a set of labs showing that I had been infected with Borrelia and uh, Babesia and Bartonella, I took that to a um, infectious disease doctor and this was another one of those stories that I had heard over and over again that I thought this could never happen to me, but he literally laughed in my face. Wow. And he, he told me that, that I needed to pay no attention to the lab results because they were fictitious. And, and I walked out of there with no answers. Mm. And so there's no hope in that. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you say brilliantly though, in, in your documentary, you talk about doctors want to trim dead branches of a tree instead of keeping the tree alive, right? And then you talk about how the CDC and Big Pharma are in bed with each other and how CDC executives, meaning the people that run the CDC, hold patents and have a vested interest in Big Pharma. And because of that, there's a major conflict of interest in who suffers, us, the Lyme community and, and the general population as a whole. So you really, you know, without going into more detail, you go into this in great detail in this documentary, which is why everybody needs to watch it to learn the reality and seriousness of how deep this truth of Lyme section is and to be able to learn how to overcome it despite all of the obstacles you're going to face when dealing with chronic Lyme disease. So Tony, so, I think you wanted to say something and I, and I yeah, interrupted so, you. I'm sorry. So we rewatched the movie two nights ago, three nights ago, you know, and when it came to the truth of Lyme again, I was pausing and going, can you believe this? This is real. This is documented. Look, I have the article right there. That's proof. This is real. When you just listen to me narrating, it sounds like I'm making it all up because it's way out there, right? That the CDC is buying shares, you know, in, in big pharma. And that is just totally illegal. But there it is, all the proof, all the stuff coming in your face. And you have to scratch your head and go, whoa, there are a couple of Lyme orgs that watched the film and they didn't want to be a part of it because they thought we made everything up. This is a little too far-fetched. I said, no, 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 this is real research. This is real stuff. You can actually, I leave on purpose the, um, the websites on top for people to go and look for themselves, you know? This is real, this insanity. Tony, that's how you know you're onto something, right? So Dr. Alan McDonald, the famous pathologist and who, who's in the tick-borne illness community, he proved in the 70s that, that Lewy body dementia was connected to Lyme disease, right? And, and the spirochetes were connected to Lewy body dementia and 100% of Lewy body dementia patients had Lyme in their brain. He went to a conference and they, they basically told him, you made this up, you lied, you fabricated. And he became kicked out of the community. Fast forward 40 years later, now they're proving his work to be true and they're embracing it. So this is what happens. Orgs get pushed away because it's too controversial, but this is the truth and this is the reality. And as people need to watch this to get the unbiased you know, truth of what's going on and not get the watered down version of, of what's really happening out there in the world. So, yeah. but beyond that, I mean, look, everybody listening to this podcast and everybody who's sick with chronic Lyme disease, they always want one thing. I want to feel better. How can I feel better? Which takes us to part four, which is the healing of Lyme. And this is a hard, I think, topic for people because there is no magic pill. There is no one treatment and there is no one step protocol that's going to work for everybody. What, ha what worked for you, Francis, probably wouldn't work for me, right? So talk to me about how you approach this part of your documentary understanding that, you know, as you noted, it's very controversial and there's so much disagreement in and out of the Lyme community from, from academics, scientists, doctors, and patients. How did you approach this topic and go into it without turning people off and being able to give them still good information to walk away with? Well, I think that was difficult because 
as we went through our journey, um, initially when I had signed up for treatment, I had these expectations that I was going to come out as superwoman. I was so I was so excited, you know. I, I set myself up for disappointment because that doesn't happen, you know. It may happen in a few cases where people treat and they immediately become better afterward. But luckily, um, at the very early stages of my treatment, I did have a doctor come to me and tell me, "Listen, you're going to go through treatment. It's going to be extensive." And after that, you're probably still going to need to treat with some herbals. Um, you're going to need to do a lot of different things, you know, to maintain your health and your diet. And you probably won't see any healing for about another three or four years. And, and so knowing that going in changed my expectations that, okay, this is going to be a journey. This is not a quick sprint to the finish line. This is going to be, you know, a journey. Um, it's, it's going to be a marathon. Um, so I, we, when that was one thing that we wanted to make clear to um, our followers and the viewers is that Again, like you said, there's no quick fix. There's no blue pill for healing. No. So we wanted to make sure that we covered various options of approaches and expectations and some of the things that we could do in our very own home to help ourselves heal. And one of the biggest things is to change our diet. And so to me that I've become a huge advocate of not only treating, but you have to do things like change your diet and, and a lot of self-care. You need to slow down enough to realize that you have to take care of yourself in new ways that you never did before when you were healthy. Yeah. So Tony, when you, when you realized what Francis had just outlined, that the path was going to be a very difficult path, um, how did that make you feel, A, for the person that you were caring for, and B, for yourself as the caretaker who is going to be contributing to this, uh, to the success of this process? It's extremely frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. You want, you want everything to be microwave, right? Quick. And you go in and out. You take that pill for the headache, and the headache is gone. I take ibuprofen with the headache. It's done. And with chronic illnesses, it's, it's such a multi-layered multifaceted complex issue, you know? So we do, I don't want to give away too much of the film because we want people to watch it and intake and it to be as much of a surprise as possible. But we make a distinction between being cured and being healed because there's a difference between getting cured and getting healed, which is Lyme. That, that's a very important distinction because once you understand this, you can move forwards, you know, one foot at a time and, and have the, the proper expectations. Again, we interviewed a lot of people um, that throughout these five years making this, and we learned so much. There was this, there was this man from Canada that got treatment in one of the clinics that we visited, and he went in wearing uh, using crutches. And towards the fourth month of treatment, he was jogging and he felt amazing, and it, he had a, an immense, great breakthrough. And we were hanging out, and he said, "You know, I can't wait to go back home and go back to my life." And um, um, eat the things I like to eat again. And my buddies are all, we're all going to meet at the bar and we're going to have a beer. And I, and I said, man, you can't do that anymore. That'll, you will 
that'll kill you. You can't. And that's when the version, the, the idea of version 2.0 came. came. We, we told him, listen, that was version 1.0. That's dead. That person is dead. You can never visit that person ever again. You are now a version 2.0. And you have a kind of a curse in quotes now where you have to eat healthy for the rest of your life. That's your new curse where you can never do the things that your friends do. They go out to drink margaritas. You can't do that. That's done. That, that part of you died. And the sooner you accept that, the healthier you will get, the faster you will, you will see healing in your life, you know? So I, I, we wanted to push that in the film as well as, as, as much as we could. So Tony, but I'm really asking you about more about you, right? Because as Francis was becoming Francis 2.0, Tony yeah. was becoming Francis, uh, not Francis 2.0, but Tony 2.0, right? Um, and, and now Francis is just outlining for us, you know, all of the different challenges she knew that she was going to have to face and how this was going to be a very different healing journey than she believed that it was going to be. Yeah. How, did, how did you feel, A, about what, your, what this woman who you were in love with was going to have, have to go through in order to be able to achieve healing? Um, and how did you feel yourself about what you were going to have to go through while she was going on this long and painful journey? Yeah, I was, I was scared. I was really scared. It was, uh, it was, it's a frightening experience because I knew that going through this with her would incur so much change in us, so much transformation. And that's always a scary thing. Transform into what? Change into what? A monster? A, a, a person that's afraid now of life and the world and hypersensitive to anything that might come my way. So there's, there was, I was very much afraid, hopeful, but afraid, optimistic, but afraid. Yeah. It's a scary journey for sure. So Francis, um, how did you observe Tony deal with his fears and how were you able to help him overcome his challenges while you were um, going through the, the battle that you were going through? Well, I had to make sure that we stayed connected and that we communicated openly, you know, to be very transparent. I mean, if anything, that's what I learned to do. It's like, you can't hide anything in these, in this situation, right? Um, so you, even if there's no answer, you have to find a way to explain what's happening to you. And um, she's very good at that. I mean, the, the thing I think that helped me the most was that he was extremely supportive and that he did have that optimism because during those three years when I was treating, I had no optimism. <laughs> I mean, there were times where I thought as you know, that I thought I was going to die from this disease. And I already was trying to figure out how am I going to explain this to my family and, and my friends, what's happening to me. Yeah. And, and when, and for the most part, uh, when Tony would start to, to fall along with me, you know, into those dark places. Um, we just had to take a break from one another so that we could get back on track and refocus and reset. And in a lot of times it would take me much longer than him. And um, I guess one of the biggest things now that I am being asked this question is I felt like, um, we need to, we needed to, as he mentioned earlier, to center ourselves. Uh, and I think that's where we began focusing more on our spiritual growth because we were already doing things uh, for our health physically 
And, um, you, you know, I was detoxing to try to rid myself of a lot of the neurological symptoms. But, but I think I started to realize that our souls were suffering. And, and because we were in this darkness, we didn't know what was out there, if we had any hope truly. And so that's when we started relying on the you know, feeding ourselves spiritually, because I mean, what more can you do? What more can you do when you're faced with all of this? And so we, we started encouraging each other to, um, to take that extra step to, um, you know, seek counseling, to get mentors, to share, begin sharing ourselves with other people who, even if they didn't understand, we had some level of accountability to other people who were looking out for us, who had our best interests in mind. And a lot of times we had to go outside of our family and friends, you know, to, to um, look for these people because they didn't, they didn't know us, you know, they, there was no judgment. They were just there strictly to help us and to encourage us. And so together we started seeking that level of care and level of help for ourselves. That, that was later after 2019, wasn't it? The, the journey it itself was in was, 2019. Yeah. The journey itself is pretty lonely. Yes. It's pretty lonely. It was very yeah. isolated. And I think a lot of people listening to this can, um, can relate uh, a couple doing this Lyme thing alone. It's a lonely journey. We were very isolated. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tony, it's in in many cases, it's truly um, a a lonely journey, meaning there's no one else. It's just the the patient going through it themselves. And and thank God for Francis, she had you. Uh, Talk to us about, talk to us about, you know, I mean, Francis was getting sick right as your relationship began. Um, talk to us about why you were willing to stay in this new relationship when it was going to be a really, really difficult journey and, you know, how you were ultimately able to, you know, sort of keep it, keep this relationship and keep yourself interested in this relationship when you were going through all these difficulties. Well, um, you know, I just, I'm going to give you a cliche answer if you don't mind. I know you guys love the cheese from time to time. Um, I just knew she was the one when I met her. And I knew that I had to go through this with her because um, at the end of whatever journey we were embarking on, on the other side, there was going to be something I had never had before. And you know what? That was, I was right. I was right about that. The relationship we have now is, I never imagined that existed. Well, but all right. So, so you knew she was the one, but did you know that, um, you know, I mean, look, there, I think there are a lot of people who um, think that it's that someone's the one, yeah. but then when they have to carry, uh, you know, so much of a burden when they're going through that with that one, they become they're not, not the one anymore. I mean, you know, let's, Absolutely. So let's... And, and make no mistake there, you know, when, when things got dark and we would fight and all these things, I didn't say, oh, but she's the one. Let me just stick around because, honey, you're the one. No, it's, it's not like that. But at the end of the day, when the mind settles, and you're making choices, you know, do I want to do this or not? I would always go to, yes, I want to do this because I know what's going to be on the other side. So at the end of the day, yeah, that's what it comes down to. Uh, if I didn't love Francis the way I did, to be rich, I mean, I don't think it would have lasted. Yeah, for sure. But but love love really is a choice, Tony, right? It, it is a choice. And you made the choice to love this woman despite all the challenges. Uh, so talk to us about 
um, you know, how difficult it was for you to go through this. Give us more, give us some more meat on that bone. Um, how difficult was it? Um, sometimes she would um, do things out of Lyme rage that would hurt a lot. And I know a lot of people can relate to this and they would, I would get angry. I would get very angry. I would have to detach myself and um, I would just have to give it time to see her as that girl that I fell in love with again, you know, and, and it, it was just, yeah, it was, it was that tough. Yeah. So I think Francis, talk to us, Francis, talk to us a little bit about what it was like from your perspective, right? Because I think every single person listening to this podcast knows or can relate to the fact that when you're really sick, you're going to treat people around you in a way that you look back on and regret a little bit, right? So how was this an emotional roller coaster for you when you were having all these psychological problems and you were maybe treating your husband in a way that looking back, you have, you know, you feel badly about, how was that impacting you and how did you learn and grow from that? And what advice would you have to people listening to deal with that same situation that unfortunately all of us have to deal with? Well, that's a great question because it really, really forced me to take a deep dive inside. I mean, during this period of time in my life, this so-called season that I've been through, I don't think I've ever been more introspective in my life ever. And um, I had to start taking a good look at at my behaviors and at my beliefs and, um, you know, self-talk, like what kinds of things were were going through my mind that I was saying about myself and about my relationship and about Tony. And I had to start evaluating everything. And so um, it really did become a journey of self-discovery as well, because I I had to start diving into um, traumas from my past that were being triggered during this very vulnerable time in my life where um, it, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of self-control. And um, you sometimes Tony was the trigger, you know? <laughs> and, and I had to really, really look at those things. And I, I started doing a lot of research and a lot of studying. And that's, you know, I reached out to mentors at my church. Um, that's where I said I, I took a deeper dive into the spiritual aspect of things because I didn't want to be that person. And I, I, I was scared when, when I had these um, eruptions with Lyme rage later on, when my brain would cool down, it would take a couple of hours for me to just to start to calm down. And I would have to take all kinds of things just to calm myself down. And, and then I would start to look at who I just was, you know, like two hours ago, this big explosion I have, and I didn't like what I saw. And I knew that to some extent, uh, there was something that I had to do to start working on myself and changing those things, even though I didn't know where to begin or, or how to address those issues. But it just, I think with Lyme disease, um, Rich and Matt, you have to have a lot of grit and tenacity to, like Tony says, pierce through the darkness and to push through to that little light of hope up ahead. And you have to become a warrior. You have to put on your armor and you have to be prepared to fight because if you don't stand up to fight, you will, you will sink into that darkness. And when you start sinking into that darkness, it looks like there's no hope and it looks like there's no way out, so. But, but 
there's people that have lost the tenacity, they've lost the hope, they've lost everything because Lyme will strip that and that's okay. If you're there, get that tenacity back. And we do talk about that. And, and the caretakers, this is our mantra now as well. You have to love each other back to life. That's the thing, you know? So she's lost her tenacity. I got some of it. My job is to love her back to life. And she has to do that with me as well. And that needs to happen or else we've never shared this before, but that the day that we had that exchange inside the car that I, that I filmed, that's in the movie, right? That horrible exchange. I knew you weren't yourself. The very next day we were in the house in Aurora, Colorado. And the morning um, you came to me already with everything down, your brain had already was normal again. And you had your hands in your faces and you said, and you said to me, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. I don't even know where to begin. And I, I, I hugged her and I said, I know, I know that wasn't you. So that's, that's one of the tools that, that I personally had that when she became that person, I knew that there, were th there was something going on there that wasn't the girl that I met, you know. Tony, I just want to dig a little bit deeper on this topic because maintaining a successful relationship through a chronic Lyme and a late stage Lyme experience is extremely uncommon, unfortunately. And the two of you are a successful model for that. So I want to understand what you did more so our listeners can learn from that. And hopefully we can have more people be able to sustain relationships and romantic relationships and even just family relationships, friendships, et cetera, to be able to sustain those relationships throughout their illness. Right. And it sounds like Francis, I'll start with you though. From your perspective, you knew when something would happen and you'd reflect on it and then you'd communicate with Tony afterwards once you realized what was going on. And I think that's something that many of us feel ashamed about and maybe won't communicate after the incident occurs. So is that something that you felt was important? And is there anything else I'm missing, Francis, from your standpoint that you felt is really important to keep your relationship strong and still be together now that you're through it and on the other side of this? Yeah, um... I mean, he was the only one who was truly seeing everything that I was going through. And, and like I said earlier, I just had to be authentic. I had to be authentic. I had nothing left to hide. What was the point of hiding anything? I, it, it's like everything was stripped from me. And, I, and all that was left was just my genuine self. And so I had to come clean to him every time I fell, every time I messed up. I had to own it <laughs> yes. and apologize for it. And, and that she did and, every single time. And hopefully together we would find, we were determined to find ways to, to attack those issues, to grow from them, to change, um, to work on them. Uh, and, and we knew that it wasn't gonna be change overnight. Yeah. I mean, that was clear. That was obvious so that we, we just had to keep, here's a, here's a, a thoughtful idea. When you plant a garden, you, you begin with the seed and you plant it into the dark soil and you have no idea. I mean, what's going to happen? Is it going to come to life eventually? But you keep working at it. You, you keep watering it. You till the soil, you pluck out the weeds, the sun is there. And, and it eventually you reap a harvest. So it's just something that you just have to keep hitting and keep hitting and keep hitting, even when you don't see anything happening, but you, you have to be persistent and consistent. And when you fall, you get back up. You, you have to keep getting back up. You don't stay down. 
So um, yeah, those, like I said, it takes a lot of grit and tenacity to, to get through lying. Tony, let me ask you about, um, you know, sort of striking the balance between respecting what Francis needed to be alone and res and then at the same time trying to sort of, you were saying sort of like breathe the grit back into her. Because one of the things I really loved about your documentary um, is that you spoke about self-isolation and why people with Lyme disease in many cases self-isolate because they need to be filtering out from the stimuli or the overstimuli that comes with, uh, with this, this journey. So as a caretaker and as somebody who is in this relationship, how did you strike the balance between giving Frances the space she needed when she needed to self-isolate and she needed to sort of filter out all of this stimulus? And then when did you know when to help to help breathe grit back into her so she can rebegin the fight and sort of rejoin the community of, of both your relationship and the larger community of people that you all interact with? Well, first of all, I mean, this goes without saying I'm not perfect. And I, I made more mistakes than not. That, that's obvious. I, I, I Did I always know how to give her time? No, no. I, I She was very gracious in saying that a lot of times I triggered her. I triggered her every single time. That's the truth. <laughs> you know, the truth is, you know, you're living together and one person has an illness like that. She had neuroborreliosis in her brain. There were things that I saw that, um, but the triggers were minimum. You know, she would just escalate very quickly, very fast. And um, I, I, a lot of times would scream back at her. I, I, I would do things that, that, that later I was ashamed of. She, She's saying that she had to, to apologize. I had to apologize the same amount of times, you know? And, and that's how we kept going day after day, after day, after day. Hardest thing we've ever done. But, uh, but no, I, I, I wasn't perfect and I didn't always know how to give her time. Um, as a matter of fact, right in the beginning of the movie, there's that famous scene now on the internet of her saying, leave me alone. And I say, you're not gonna be here alone because I thought she was suicidal. And I had the camera in her face and she smacks the camera out of my hands. And that was a classic case of me not, you know, I, I should have turned around and let her uh, do her own thing, but I was concerned um, about her safety. But I, so, so that's a fine line right there, you know, very fine line. Um, so I, I didn't always know, Rich. I did not always know. Um, I know much, much more now, uh, but going through that process, it was, it was difficult. Well, we'll like talk a, about, but Tony, talk about, you know, to the caretakers who are going to be watching your film, because I agree with Matt. I think this is a really important film for people who are on the journey like Francis, but I think it may even be more important for people who are caretakers and, and, and for caretakers going on this journey, right? Because one of, one of the observations we've made in our podcast is you don't beat Lyme by yourself. People who are isolated and on their own generally are not able to heal, right? You really, it has to be a team approach. And we're going to get to that in a couple of, couple of minutes because we do want to talk about Francis's brilliant conversation about building a team and that really, and the way you captured that, Tony, but let's hold on to that for a second and, and talk to us about what you would recommend to people who are caretakers and how maybe they could strike the balance a little bit better than you were able to now that you have the benefit of some perspective. Hmm. Well, that's a tough one to answer. Um, I think I'm still learning that. And uh, I'm not sure that I have a definitive answer. You know, I think I'm still, 
striking that balance, still seeking it. Um, you know, this is this is all very. This just happened a couple of years ago. You know, with us between us, and yes, we made a movie and so forth. But um, I'm still a work in progress, and I'm st I think I'm still learning that. Uh, the balance is a day to day. I learned with one of the people that we interview, and it stuck with me. I've, I had heard all my life, you know, from the twelve groups, uh, you take it one day at a time. Until I heard it from Rob Zajac, the firefighter, he came to me and he said, "You got to do it one day at a time." And then it hit me. So the way that I do it now is exactly that, one day at a time. And it, that that sentence has been used and overused, but when you really think about it, is the day is over and the, the morning is a blessing and uh, let's reset, let's start over, let's learn from, you know, I, I spend time meditating and in prayer in the morning, going over those things and um, through trial and error, you know, in God's grace, we are here. But I, but it was, it was mistake after mistake after yeah. mistake after mistake, and then doing something right and keep going forward, keep moving forward, keep moving forward. That's it. Yeah, I yeah. was going to say it was definitely a series of trial and error yes. <laughs> because eventually I, I, uh, I knew that if I relapsed on my, well, I knew that if I messed up for two weeks on my diet, that eventually it would bring inflammation into my body and then that would bring symptoms. And so I began to prepare for that better. I began to expect that. And, and, and when, when those things would happen, I would immediately go into detox mode to try to cut things off more quickly. And so I'd go into like full detox and I, and I started learning what worked for me yes. and, and I would just take a week or two and just go heavily at it. Even after treatment, even to this day, I do that to this day. I yeah. still detox heavily if we're traveling and I'm not in my normal routine and I'm eating bad foods that I know will cause inflammation. Um, I, the first thing I do is I come home and I, I take a week off and I just, I do juicing and I do different things yes. to head off that inflammation so that I am able to stay in the right frame of mind. I'm able to take care of myself and take care of our relationship. So let it, me insert it's series, a series of trial and error. I, that's correct. I'm going to insert something as the caretaker. So when we go to Colorado, Colorado serves what the best Mexican food in the country. <laughs> I don't know why Arizona, I don't know why it doesn't happen here, but Colorado, I mean, and this girl loves her um, enchiladas with green chili. It's my soul food. It's Mexican soul food, food is soul food for and me. And with tons of cheese. Yeah, it destroys her, destroys her. So I, I, uh, we would go to Colorado for a week or two at a time, and she would get inflammated in her brain from those foods, and she would become aggressive. And then I started noticing that. You can't turn away from that. You cannot. So then I would, um, I, um, I almost put this in the movie, but I didn't. After she had a binge with a couple of enchiladas, the next day she was miserable. She was grumpy. All those things happening. And I, I shot a video of her saying, I want you to talk to your future self. How did, what did you do last night? Look in the camera, talk to your future self. And she said something like, hi, future self. Last night I had enchiladas and I had the, 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 you know, and lots of cheese. And how do you feel right now? Miserable. Was it worth it? The flavoring? Was it worth how you're feeling right now? Absolutely not. 
So then we go to Colorado again. So listen, you got to watch this video. And it works sometimes, it doesn't. But now we know that, for example, when we go there, can she eat a little bit? Yes, she can cheat a little bit, a little bit. You know, we, I, I keep an eye on her. She keeps an eye on me. Honey, um, okay, what you're going to eat right now? Just make sure you know what you're doing. You know, tomorrow you may. And then she knows uh, the amount. She knows. So these things are trial and error as well. We learned from falling. You know, we learned all this from falling. So we're going to go premiere this movie right now, right? We're going to premiere in April and May. We're going to do a lot of traveling. We're going to be in New York. We're going to be in, and, and we, now we talk about all these things. Hey, the foods, people are saying, when you go to Philly, you got to have the Philly cheesesteak. Well, you know, maybe we can share one, but now we talk about these things openly. We know the things that are going to hurt her. They're going to hurt me. You know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I hit 50. I, I gotta be careful with what I eat, you know? So we, we keep an eye on each other. And that is one of the secrets to uh, the caretakers also. Make sure that you, you don't just let your wife or husband eat and do it. If you notice that there's something that triggers them in the way that they eat and the things that they watch and the things that they do and the people that they hang out with, because Lion, people with Lyme become like superheroes that, are, that absorb everything. You know, they become like these super absorbing machines. So it's my job as a caretaker to keep an eye out for her to see the things that she's absorbing. When we go to Colorado, there's certain people that I know she can't be with. They're toxic. They're going to mess up her mind. And she's a super empath with the Lyme. She's like a sponge, you know? So honey, let's avoid those people this trip. The, the, these things need to be talked about. There was so much gold in that. I hope you realize how powerful that answer was and how much information that is going to help our listeners and reminded me about things that I need to improve in my life. So thank you for that, both of you, Francis and Tony. But let's talk about the beauty of Lyme, right? I mean, you know, here we are, you guys are through it, you're better, you're stronger for it. I mean, and what does that really mean, the beauty of Lyme? So Francis, if you can start and tell us, you know, this is part five, the conclusion of, of your documentary, obviously you don't give us too much, but what does the beauty of Lyme mean to you, Francis? And, and again, for people listening and for myself and for you, this has been hell. How can you possibly say there's beauty behind Lyme and what do you mean by that? Well, I think Matt, I'm fortunate that when I first discovered I was ill, one of the first mindsets that I applied to my journey, not knowing yet what I would go through was, um, and, and I know that I'm sick. I know that I've been diagnosed with this and I know it's going to be a journey, but what am I here to learn? You know, what am I going to learn from this? What's my takeaway? So in the beginning, when I had those thoughts and I, um, I didn't, I didn't know that it would be years later and now I'm on the other side of it, how much I would um, grow from this experience and how much I would truly take away from it all. And as I mentioned before, it, it's been a lot of self-discovery. Um, I mean, I have grown exponentially. I um, emotionally, um, with the amount of wisdom that I've gained, you know, on how to take care of myself. Um, I, I've learned to appreciate relationships more and how to nurture those relationships better. Um, I've, I, you know, I've always loved and enjoyed life, but now I, I really have learned to live in the moment um, so that when I am with the people that I care for, I'm present. 
I'm not thinking about other things. I'm just there living minute by minute. And that's, you know, I've, I've always been a dreamer. Um, I've always been very adventurous. So I was always, when I was healthy, I was always thinking about what was I going to do next? You know, the most exciting, I love to travel. So I was always planning, traveling and socializing. And a lot of that got cut out of my life. And now I'm to the point where little by little, I'm starting to add more of that in my life. But um, it, it's, it's um, definitely been a journey of growth for me. And um, a maturity, you know, maturity, like, I've elevated to this newer level of um, wisdom and experience and maturity that I just didn't have even four years ago. Oh, she's a totally different person yeah. today from five years ago. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, mean, I feel like I'm a better person because I Lyme slowed me down to the point where I was no longer running to and fro. You know, I think that before I was caught up in this cycle where I would get up, I'd go to work. I would come home, I would have my set routine of things to do. And then I would get up the next day and do it all over again. But, and, and I was just kind of on this hamster wheel, you know, but, but when everything got taken away from me, I had to start noticing every aspect of my life, including my thoughts, like I said, my beliefs. And I started, um, taking care of all of those things and, and really working on myself because down deep inside, I knew that, that there was more, I knew that there was more to me that I had wanted to become. And I think now after going through this crazy journey that I am more of that person today, um, you know, that because of the amount of hardships that and I've gone through. there's still so much more to learn, huh? Yeah. You know, Francis, what? Oh, sorry, Tony. There was a, a guy that we interviewed, Brandon, in Boston, and he was a football player in, in high school and he started playing college ball. And he said, um, when he got Lyme, exactly what she said, he slowed down to the point. He said, one day when I was, when I, when he had pierced through that darkness and he was already starting to see things in a different way, he said, I saw for the first time in my life, this is a guy in his early 20s. I, I noticed for the first time in my life, a bird singing up on a tree. And I just thought, I just went, are you serious? He goes, yeah, no, I never noticed. I was, you know, video games and, and work and, and football and girls. And, but it was then for the first time that he looked out his tree and he just looked at this bird and it, it, it moved him deeply. That's what the beauty of Lyme is about. And uh, here's something that didn't make the movie, but I, I wanted to. In 2017, the, the, the Berlin, the Berlin Symphony came here to Phoenix to play um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy, you know, and we decided that we wanted, I, I wrote to the, uh, to the symphony and I asked them for tickets. I shared the, um, the trailer, you know, and I said, I wanted to take some people sick with Lyme that have lost hope to watch, to experience Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And this lady was like, absolutely, sent us tickets right away. I went to a clinic here um, that treats late stage cancer and late stage Lyme. And I said, who is the sickest person with Lyme that you have here? Give me the worst case. And, and the girl at the front called the doctor and said, without a cause, without thinking twice, it's this young man, I forget his name now, named Robert. And he is, he's 28 years old. He's sensitive to light. So he's got to wear sunglasses he's sensitive to sound so he's got to wear plugs in his ears 
he's sensitive to touch, so nobody can touch him. And, and so we'll let you see him, but I had to sign stuff and he's in that room and he was in a dark room sitting by a cane. He had a beard and he was just in the corner crumpled up like this is mom next to him reading a book with very dim light. I mean, this is real. This is really happening. I went in there, introduced myself and I said, I'm making a movie and so forth. And, and I was trying to get, uh, I was trying to get uh, the, the Phoenix Symphony to give me permission to film in there because I wanted to film his, his reaction to show that we need to inject these things back in life. You can't be in a room in darkness. You have to, you have to see nature. You have to see the things you love. You have to listen to the music you love. You gotta inject these things. You gotta be surrounded by people you like and love. You need to. Lime isolates and strips you away from people and things you love. And suddenly you're in this hole all by yourself, you know? So I went in there and I said, I have these two tickets for you guys to come see tomorrow night, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I would love it if you could come. And they got and said, oh, thank you so much, you know? So we went the next night and they didn't show, you know, we sat down and um, the, the, the orchestra um, started warming up and the lights go on the, the first time and it went on the second time. And then it went on the third time. And I said, oh, I really wanted that young man to come. And as the lights dimmed, then he came in with, with his cane and his mother. And they sat next to us. He took off his glasses and his earplugs. And when that choir exploded, he just started crying. And I just kept looking over to him and he was in that moment being born alive again, you know, that's the beauty of life. That's what you cannot give up. You cannot stop ever pursuing those things. The caretaker has to introduce those things into the home. You know, I, I try to introduce spirituality, but humor. I, I had a, a goal to make her laugh every single day. You know, she had to laugh. I had to make goofiness or jokes or a funny movie or something, but going to a concert like that and experiencing life. And that young man at the end gave us big, deep hugs, hugged us deeply. I don't, you know, I was scared to hold him, but he held me deeply and he grasped on my shirt, held me deeply and said, thank you. That is my friends, the beauty of Lyme. That's what's on the other side. You have to pierce, you got to pull, you got to go, you got to have somebody with you and you have got to keep these beautiful things that God put in this world to keep us alive. That's it. So Tony, let's revisit the Francis and Tony 2.0 issue, because one of the things you said a little bit earlier that I wanted to challenge you on, and I think this is the perfect moment, is you said, the old person is dead and the new person is here. The old person could eat what he wanted and the new person can't. Right. And, you know, I, that sounded a little uncomfortable to me. It's certainly not consistent with my experience with Lyme because what I've seen as a caretaker is that um, I have gratitude for things that I took for granted before. I have gratitude for an immune system that works really well. And I now am much more intentional about supporting that immune system. I'm much more grateful for having the opportunity to eat properly and to exercise intelligently and, and, the, and, and to socially detox. And I, and I have gratitude for all of the things that I took for granted. So is right. Tony 2.0 somebody who can't do things anymore? Or is Tony 2.0 someone who's learned 
that you don't want to do things anymore because you have all these systems that work really well and you can now support those things in a way that will allow you to appreciate them in the same way that the football player appreciated the bird and the same way that your friend appreciated the concert. Quite possibly, yes. I would say that Francis 2.0, 22 Bird are, are two different processes and two parallel walks, I believe. I think that for Francis, it's a bit more, uh, there are things that she, she can't exercise the way she did. She can't, uh, she can't, um, I mean, she may one day, you know. Um, well, but why would she want to? Why, why would she want to exercise that way? Because Francis 2.0 is now exercising in a way that is supporting her immune system rather than not supporting her immune system. She's, she's exercising in a way that's supporting her emotionally rather than putting herself in emotional stress. She's exercising in a way that is socially supportive rather than socially isolating. I mean, exercise, for example, is one of the things that jumped out at me about the experience of the movie. And I can't wait for people to watch that piece of the transformation, how, how, how Frances is much more intentional uh, about the way she's using exercise, for example, which I think was brilliantly portrayed by you, Francis, brilliantly told by you, Tony. But that was one thing that really jumped out at me. So I'm glad we're, we're, we're tripping on it. But I think it's part of a larger picture of, of, of the two of you and how you've changed and how you're using everything to support your happiness and your life rather than perhaps stressing it. I, I like that. And, I, and I'll take that. And I, and I think for everybody, it will be different. It will be, um, uh, I, I think that some people, um, there are things, for example, that Francis cannot have at all, period. For example, dairy, cannot, that's done. And she always enjoyed it before, always played with it, always, but now she cannot. And, and that in a sense is dead because it's poison in her body, you know? So I think that, um, um, I'm not sure that before you had Lyme, if you could, you know, eat all the ice cream that you wanted and, and eat all the cheese that you wanted and have slices of cheese pizza and lots of enchiladas. You didn't get that sick, right? Back then, in your 30s yeah. and 40s. No, you didn't. But can you have that now? Can you go have a tray of enchiladas and then have ice cream for dessert? No, no, no. You'll be better in for three days. So, <laughs> so that's my, my point is that, friend, that aspect of her life is, has to be dead. You know, you can't say, well, can I have a little bit? Well, I guess, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has to be different. This is our assessment. You know, I think most importantly is yeah. that you have to be open to reinventing yourself because for a period That's of time, sure. a period yes. of a long period of time, I mourned and, uh, and grieved after the person that I once was. Yes. And I was stuck in that hopelessness because I wanted to do and be all those things that I used to until I finally came to the realization that I can't go back there. Now I have to take all the knowledge and experience that I've learned from and reapply it into areas of my life where I have to make adjustments, I have to reinvent things. And, and now I have to become excited about this new person that I'm experiencing, you know, this, this new season that I'm in in my life. And, and so I don't keep looking back anymore. For a long time, I kept looking back, thinking that I would be able to get back to where I used to be. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. Now I'm, I'm content and happy with where I'm at. I'm still not where I want to be, but, but there's enough hope inside of me that I know that I could continue to pursue those things and become even greater. And so to me, it's all about being open and willing to reinvent yourself. Francis. 
talk to us a little bit about what you're doing though today. So obviously you were a runner and I was a runner before I got sick as well. And, and I've had to adapt and I've had to learn to do certain things that are beneficial to my overall health today. So what are some exercises or tools or techniques that you're doing today that are helping you sustain your health and not have a setback and keeping your body in good shape, but also understanding that you don't want to push yourself too hard and have a setback, right? It's really that, that fine line and that balance of, I need to do something to move my body because that's absolutely important to heal, but I don't want to overdo it and give myself a setback, right? So like, what are you doing today to keep your body fine-tuned? Right. I definitely cannot go back to the type of exercise I used to do because um, it was so high intensity that um, it, it did cause me to relapse just trying to to do those old things that I knew I was capable of. So now I have to be more gentle with my body and my approach to exercise so that I am mindful of the fact that if I overdo it, I could potentially relapse or it'll take me out for a few days of recovery. So I I've switched, you know, like, um, running and working out in the gym, high intensity, cardiovascular, um, and, and the use of, of weights to more gentle approaches like yoga and stretching and walking and physical therapy. That's something that I do now to um, definitely pinpoint the areas where I have my most need of, you know, like in my case right now, one of the reasons why I can't um, run is because the muscles in my hip flexors are have deteriorated um, not only because of the disease but because of of um, muscle atrophy you know just not being able to to exercise for several years so now i just target those areas and um and i look for flexibility and endurance and strength to like uh, Rich said, to help build my immune system and, and just to overall take better care of myself and not feeling like I have to put myself into the mold that I was in, you know, maybe a decade ago of uh, keeping up with everyone around me who, <laughs> who was striving to look a certain way or to, to be active in a certain way. And now I'm just I'm happy to, to be alive and to be able to walk and have use of my legs still to this point and just continuing to build that process so that I'm able to keep moving forward into my, the next decade. Do you still run, Matt? I don't. No, I, I do a lot of, I, I still have a lot of exercise intolerances and I do a lot of um, light things, but I found a lot of great ways to you know, support my lymphatic system, to get my heart going, to, to really do it in a healthy way that I think supports my immune system rather than would be what I'll call high impact and possibly immunosuppressive, you know, exercise. So uh, there's, there is that, that balance. And I think, you know, Francis, you kind of just hit it on the head with that and describing how you've had to pivot and change in your life as well. But so Francis, I do want to ask you one final question. I know we take it up so much of your time here and Rich is going to pick up too and, and ask a couple of final questions, but one of the things in the beauty of Lyme, the final chapter of, of your documentary you talk about, and I believe this is one of the most, and, and for context, Richard and I used to argue about this and I used to disagree. And now I've come along and I actually agree with him on this topic is, you know, you, you talked about a belief, not doubt, hope, not despair. These are the things that you needed to heal and live a better life. And without them, you probably wouldn't be, well, you said you wouldn't be where you are today. Right. And then you said, once, once determination gets its own momentum, 
you became unstoppable. And like that made me, that gave me chills, right? Because I think I, that resonated very strongly with me. And I think it will resonate very strongly with the Lyme community. And there's so much more there that people need to watch this documentary and hear this. I mean, it's, it's beautiful the way you describe this. But it just give us a little bit of information about how you had that mindset and how that mindset propelled you to get this momentum, which made you become unstoppable and now be this force where you're doing this, this documentary to change probably millions of lives once it comes out. I believe um, when we finally come to the point where we recognize that we are, we are indeed warriors, we are overcomers in life, we can overcome things. Um, and, and as we continue to tell ourselves that, we begin to believe that, and then we begin to walk it out in our lives. And um, when you come to the point where you realize, wow, I overcame these set of fears that I had at one point when I was in my darkest. Um, I, I overcame these doubts that I have. I overcame these struggles that I had with changing my diet and, um, and, and really understanding what health is all about. And now my immune, I know how to, to build up my immune system. Um, when you start to realize that you are indeed an overcomer and that you you become a you can still become a better person and then you 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 gain that hope and you gain that momentum to continue to move forward and even if you just push yourself a little bit day by day as long as you're moving forward then you're going in the right direction and that's when you begin to gain that momentum so um i think that a lot of times we realize when once we go through these things that, that we're a lot stronger than we ever knew we were. And, and that's, that's a beautiful blessing when you say, wow, I, I didn't know I had it in me to get through something like this or to overcome something like this or to go through a three-year or a five-year or a 10-year journey. And now I'm still here and I'm not the same person I used to be. I'm no longer living in hopelessness or I'm no longer overcome by those fears. So that right there is, is a, a great wake-up call, an epiphany to how wonderfully we are made, to how beautiful we really are, the human spirit and, um, and you know, the, the tenacity to, to become our greater selves um, and to, to have the willingness to work on all aspects of our lives in healing, not just to take the blue pill and to get better, but to start working on every aspect of our lives that we talked about in the film. And, and as Tony mentioned, the mind, the body, and the spirit. I, I think that's um, that's how you beat it. Well, Tony, before I let you go, I, I, there, there's something I, I have to talk to you about because I really love the part of this interview. And that is, I want to talk to you about identity and mindset. Uh, Tom Bilyeu, who is the founder of Quest Bars, um, argues that the identity that trumps all other identities is that of a learner. That somebody who is a learner, who has a mindset of growth, is never paralyzed because every single experience is one where they're learning, right? And what I really loved about part of what you said a moment ago, and I think you really are sort of an, an embodiment of that identity and mindset, is when I asked you about how you strike the balance between giving Frances room versus encouraging her to uh, re-engage, you said, I don't know. I just have to keep trying. I have to keep learning, right? So talk to us about the importance of you having this, this um, growth mindset 
and um, uh, or I should say this learner mindset and this, uh, let me try it one more time, this learner identity and this growth mindset and how important that was to you as a caretaker on this journey. Um, I think that identity is connected um, directly to the fact, and not everybody will be able to uh, identify with this, that we're, we're both, we're a couple of faith, you know, we, we um, you know, we're Christians and we pray together, and the, the tenet of that is the fact that I'm a disciple, and so I, I carry that in my life in every area. In every, you know, I, I am learning all the time. I, I, I haven't arrived. I'm in a journey. And um, I, I realized in this path of, of Lyme disease with Francis that things, things don't happen to us. They happen for us. You know, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a difference there. So when I started seeing this, I saw myself as this disciple that's learning, that's here to teach once in a while, but through the things that I learn, I'm going to teach, you know, through the actions, through the, the things that I'm changed and transformed with, that's how I'm able to love people back to life and so forth. So I think that that's the, the identity. I don't know if I answered your question properly. No, but you, but you did because look, ultimately, and look, Matt and I are Christians as well. And we've shared that on the podcast in the, in the past, but you know, we do not tell people what to believe. We don't think it's appropriate for us to, to tell people what to believe. And we've learned is that there are a lot of different paths up that mountaintop. But in the end, in order to be able to heal, you have to be able to grow and you have to be able to grow in a way that will allow you to contribute to the lives of other people, right? To love people to a place where they'll have a better life, right? And, and what your tradition is, is I think less important than the spirit that you just identified, which is you're a learner. Yes. You have a growth mindset and your job is to learn more, to help other people, to love other people to a place where they can have a better life. So talk about that connection because I think you've hit it right on the head. Um. Let me think here. Um, at one point, I, I learned, and here's that word again. At one point, I learned that I couldn't be the person that has arrived or has understood, got it all. You know, this is my life story, and that's that, and period. Um, I, I think that both the person with Lyme that is sick and needs to get better and the caretaker both have to embark this journey as people that are going to hold hands and are going to learn a lot about what life has to offer, a lot about things that are coming. Once you understand that, instead of, oh, we're victims, this is the number one thing in the Lyme community. It's, a, it's the number one victimizing disease, you know. Oh, no, well, you guys have money, so you can do that. Or, uh, well, you guys don't have it as bad as me. Once you have that mentality, you're done. You're done. You have to get out of that victimizing mentality and you have to hold hands and say, let's learn in the, let's, let's learn in this journey together. You know, I can't teach her anything. You know, I tried, I, it doesn't work. She can't teach me anything, you know, even though we learn from each other all the time and every day. The mentality is we're learning this journey together, and this is the only way that we're going to arrive, you know, at this place that we're sailing, you know, to. So I think that's how I see it at the end of the day. So folks, I, I, I loved this documentary, but I love this documentary because it's a brilliantly told story. It is not 
the boring thing that you'd see in high school where the AV kid came in and put on this geeky film. This is a brilliantly and warmly and lovingly told story. And I have to thank the two of you for being vulnerable and, and using your God-given gifts and talents to give us the gift of a, of a complete story that will help caretakers, that will help the people who are healing on this journey, that help That's their great. doctors and the entire team of people that are coming together. So I really wanna thank you both for the beauty of this and, and all of the people that you're gonna be helping uh, through telling the story the way you, in your two brilliantly gifted minds were able to tell the story. So talk to us about how folks can, you know, can learn more about you and, and when will they be able to see this film and bring their loved ones along with them and their doctors along with them to see this film? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we tried to release this movie maybe three or four times and it didn't work. So, so now we feel that, that it's the time we try to get it distributed and we try to, uh, so many things. So what we're doing is we, we teamed up with Lyme orgs, Lyme organizations that believe in the same things that we do, and they are bringing us to various cities. So we, we are going to show the film um, in, in Pennsylvania, April 26th and 27th, that's in Harrisburg and Philadelphia. And then we're going to show it in Boston, Massachusetts on the 1st of May, and then in New York City in Chelsea, uh, in Manhattan on May 9th. And we hope to see you guys there, Rich and Matt. You will? Uh, with your wives, with your families. We'll get, we'll get you tickets, okay? We'll sit you guys in the very front row. No, I'm kidding. We'll find you some good seats. And, and, uh, and, then, and then on the 15th in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Um, and, and then on the 18th, we have, we have probably the biggest one of all here in Phoenix. We're still working on that. Now, after that, there's the worldwide um, release on the internet through a streaming platform on May 20th. We are still working with a couple of people on which streaming platform, we're still getting offers, we're still looking at the numbers and what's gonna be best for us and for everybody, you know, price-wise and so forth. But the movie will be available on the 20th for rentals, for digital purchases um, and DVD purchases and so forth. So that's, we're gonna announce all that on the website and Facebook and Instagram. So that's why it's important for people to follow us and like our page because we announce things almost on a daily basis now. So please just uh, share with us what the where folks can follow you, what what your social media handles are, and uh, and, and I also want to promise the two of you that we're going to dedicate our page um, for an entire week to promoting this film just before its release. So we're going to have we're going to do a takeover of uh, of our page with with your content, and uh, so let in advance of that, please uh, please uh, share with our folks where they can find you and how they can start following you. First of all, our website is themonstersideme.com. We're going to have, that's where you'll be able to buy the film, rent it and so forth, buy tickets. Um, and, and our Facebook page, which we have about 20,000 people following us. And that's where we get all the, the, um, the, the updates and so forth. We do some lives there. And that's the uh, facebook.com slash themonstersidememovie. Same thing with Instagram, themonstersidememovie. So if you go there and you like us and you follow us there, you will get um, you will get updates on, Hey guys, guess what? You know, Eventbrite, it's, it's live now for New York or whatever, but we do believe based on the amount of emails and messages and DMS that we're getting, that these tickets are going to sell very fast. We got, um, due to COVID and so forth, we got, you know, theaters that only are only allowing 250 seats at a time, you know, 
Uh, in Arizona, the COVID laws are very relaxed. So we have a, a, a theater that's gonna sit, sit 1300 and we wanna fill it. And here we don't have the same restriction. So um, it, it'll be on a first come first basis, but May 20th, everybody will be able to see it. If you wanna get a DVD and, and, and watch it with your family, with your group of friends and so forth, that'll be available. So it'll be available for the whole world. And we are working on getting it subtitled in many different languages, you know, Spanish. And um, somebody wrote us saying that they could do it in Norwegian. Um, there's, you know, French and German and so forth. So we want to get it in, in various languages as well. So that's, that's, the, um, that's how we're going to distribute it. So uh, Tony Sullivan, Francis 2.0, we can't thank you enough for sharing your beautiful story with thank the you, Camp Podcast. Thank, thank you so you, much for Richard. what you do and your profound, insanely profound set of questions in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys you guys are crazy. Good, crazy. Good, crazy. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guests, Francis and Tony Silva. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Francis and Tony Silva and their Lyme documentary, The Monster Inside Me, please visit them on Instagram or Facebook at The Monster Inside Me Movie. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, please visit tickbootcamp.com search. You can also subscribe to our email list at tickbootcamp.com join. If you'd like to share feedback with Tick Bootcamp, please use the contact form on our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.